You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John 14. Let's pray together before we begin. Our God, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You that You are our great and awesome triune God. We thank You that You have predestined before the world ever began to save a people for the sake of the glory of Your own name. We thank You that You have revealed to us in the pages of Scripture all that concerns us and all that concerns our eternal salvation and also about Yourself. And we pray that You would help us to think clearly about the nature of our God and to speak clearly concerning the nature of our God. And we pray that our time here in this passage might be used to that end to make us very clear on these things and appreciative of all that you have done for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in John 14, beginning at verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And we've been talking about the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity and the nature of it. And we are forced to do that, not because we don't like to and we're forced against our will, but it comes to us in this passage that we've been looking at in John 14. We have all three persons of the Trinity mentioned in verse 16. And uh, we want to, as Christians, be clear on the nature of our God. There is no greater thing we could speak of, no more majestic thing than we can speak of than our God. And so to speak of Him is to take the greatest subject possible upon our lips. And we want to make sure that when we do speak of our God and we talk about Him and pray to Him, that we have, at least in our minds and in our hearts, a right concept of who He is. Because um, the nature of who God is is the most fundamental aspect of Christian theology. And we don't want to get that doctrine wrong. Uh, The great apologist, the late apologist, Walter Martin, used to say that you can be right about every doctrine in Scripture But if you are wrong on the nature of who God is, you are wrong enough to lose your soul for eternity. Now, I happen to believe that if you are wrong on the nature of who God is, you will also be wrong on a whole host of other doctrines. But I have never met anybody who had everything right except they worshiped the wrong God. Usually if you get that wrong, it filters down into everything else. But Walter Martin's point still stands, and it is this, that to get the nature of God wrong is a damning error. That is a damning mistake. You cannot be right about everything else and just have who God is wrong. The doctrine of the Trinity is, though it is difficult for us to articulate sometimes to kind of get our minds around and make sure that we are clear about it, it is a revealed truth in Scripture, and we have to have that right because that is at the the heart of all Christian theology, the doctrine of the Trinity. Christianity, apart from every other religion on this planet, is Trinitarian monotheism. Now, there are all kinds of monotheistic religions, Judaism is monotheistic. Islam is monotheistic. Jehovah's Witnesses are monotheistic. But Christianity is Trinitarian monotheism. 
Meaning not that we worship three gods in one God, but that we worship one God who is eternally three separate and distinct persons. So Christianity is a Trinitarian monotheistic religion. And as we've been working our way through John 14, I gave you an outline for verse 16 and 17 last week. Five things we learn about the helper, the Holy Spirit. So we're looking at the third person of the Trinity. And I gave you five things. We went through one of them. We're picking, we're going to double our speed today. We're going to go through two more, get to the second and the third. So if, in case you were keeping notes, here's a review of our outline. The five things we learn about the helper. Number one, this is what we covered last week, his relationship within the Trinity. Second, we learn about the helper's role concerning the believer. Third, about his residence within the believer. And then down in verse 17, the helper is rejected by the world and he is recognized by believers. We're going to get to verse 17 next week. Today we're going to look at his role in believers and his residence within believers. So when we talked about his, his relationship within the Trinity, let me quickly review, lay this foundation again just by way of a couple of sentences. First, we affirm that the Holy Spirit is a person, that there are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. Jesus refers to him with personal pronouns in verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he, that is the Father, will send to you that he may, uh, that he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. He will be with us forever. Not he the Father, not he the Son, but he the Holy Spirit. So there, he is a person. He is not a force. He's not an influence. He's not a power. He's not a, a divine force or nature that sort of act, acts in, in nature. He is an individual person. So when we affirm that there are three persons, we mean that any of these three persons can speak to one of the others or about one of the others, and one of these persons can send the other. And that's what we have in verse 16. We have the Father and the Son, really, sending the Holy Spirit as our helper. Second, we saw that the Holy Spirit is God, and that is contained in that one little word, another, which describes another of the same kind or of the same nature. Jesus already affirmed it in this passage earlier, his own equality with the Father, and then when he describes the Holy Spirit, he describes the Holy Spirit as another helper, another person of the very same nature, the very same kind and essence as himself, meaning that the Holy Spirit is God. So when we properly think of the doctrine of the Trinity, you should never think of the doctrine of the Trinity as a problem, and most Christians do. We think the doctrine of the Trinity is difficult. It's a problem. It's a problem for us to explain. It's a problem for us to illustrate. And by the way, never illustrate the doctrine of the Trinity because there's no illustration on the face of the planet that is an illustration of the Trinity. There is nothing like our God. So you can't say he's like a piece of pie, he's like the dimensions, he's like an egg, he's like anything else. There is nothing that is like our God. So no illustration is adequate. No illustration should ever be offered. All we can do is affirm and describe what the Scriptures teach concerning the doctrine of the Trinity. When we do that, we recognize that the doctrine of the Trinity, as properly understood, is not a problem, it is a solution. What do I mean by that? Well, when we read through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we find that Scripture consistently and perpetually affirms that there is only one God. In fact, Scripture is aggressively monotheistic. Aggressively monotheistic. It excludes all other possibilities and all other possible claimants to that, that title of God. There is only one God. That excludes every polytheistic religion and every quasi-polytheistic religion that there is only one God. But then when we read through Scripture, we find that there are three separate and distinct persons who are all called God. The Father is called God. The Son is called God. Jesus is called God. And the Holy Spirit is called God. So there is one God, but there are three separate and distinct persons who are all called God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the, that's the problem. The doctrine of the Trinity is the solution to that problem. 
The doctrine of the Trinity says those three persons are the one God. Three separate and distinct persons who all share fully and equally all that is the divine being and the divine nature. So you have three persons who can all speak to and about one another, but they are the one God. Now that sort of reviews everything we've covered up to this point. One thing I forgot to mention last week, and this is the benefit of doing this every single week, is that I can always sort of take what, what fell through the cracks last week and mention it today. So I'm going to do that. One thing I forgot to mention last week is that we see also in verse 16 the submission of the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son, and this is key. We have within the, the Trinity, what I've just described to you so far, is what we call the ontological Trinity. That's a big technical term. The ontological just seems means the, the being or the essence of. It describes being, the ontological trinity. But then there's also a way of describing the trinity as far as how the members work and relate to one another. That's what we call the economical trinity. And by economical trinity, we mean how they operate with each other. So in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have the Son who is sent by the Father. He submits to the will of the Father. Now, this is not difficult for the Son since the Son always wills to do the will of the Father and they share the same will. But in terms of authority and role, the Father, the Son submits Himself to the Father. The Holy Spirit submits Himself to the Father and the Son. Being sent by the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit comes to glorify the Son and to shine the light on the Son so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So you have the Father and below Him in terms of role or function in submission is the Son who submits to the will of the Father, and the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit, who Himself submits to both the Father and the Son. Now that's key, because when we talk about the doctrine of submission, whether we are talking within the home of a wife submitting to her husband, or in the workplace of an employee submitting to the employer, or within the government, or within the church, when we talk about submission, we are we are not describing a relationship that exists because one person is inferior to another. So this relationship within the persons of the Trinity, this submission has nothing to do with being or nature. So we would say that the submission within the Trinity is a voluntary submission, not a necessary submission. A voluntary submission, not a necessary submission. Meaning that the Spirit is not submitted to the Father and the Son because He is a lesser being. So it's not like the Father is, is really God, and the Son is a lot of God, and the Holy Spirit is even lesser God. So you have this hierarchy that exists. That's not what we are affirming. The Holy Spirit is equal to the Father and equal to the Son. Fully. They all three share the same divine nature and essence. But, in terms of function in relationship one to another, there is a voluntary, not a necessary, submission one to another. Now, that brings us to number two. The role of the Holy Spirit concerning the believer. The role of the Holy Spirit concerning the believer. Verse 16. Let's read it again. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. So when we look at the role of the Holy Spirit, we are going to focus in on that one word, helper. The one word, helper. And all that is in verse 16 concerning the role of the Holy Spirit to the people of God is contained in that one word, helper. It is the Greek word, paraclete. Now that is not the word from which we get our English word, parakeet. So if you, if you think, I get to see some people were chuckling before I even said that. So if, if I say paraclete and you think tropical bird, you have entirely missed the mark. Paraclete is a compound Greek word. It comes from two words, para, meaning beside, as in parallel, or paralegal, or paraprofessional, someone who is beside, and the verb kleo, which means to call, and the word kleo, call, is all through the New Testament. In fact, you can't even use the word church without referring to the called out ones, because that's what the Greek word church means. Ekklesia, ek, meaning out of, and klesia, from called, from kleo, which means to call. So the church exists of those not of the world coming in, and now we are the church, 
But the church exists of those who, by the grace of God, have been called out of the world and all the rest of humanity. They've been chosen and drawn and pulled out of the world, the called out ones. So a literal translation of paraclete would be one called alongside of for help or assistance. So a paraclete is one who is called alongside of for help or assistance. Now the word, though it's literally translated like that, is far deeper and far richer than just that, one called alongside to help. In fact, it is difficult, no, it is impossible to capture the whole essence of that word helper in one English word, because it is a very rich, rich word. We could, somebody who is called alongside, we could translate that as an encourager, an interceder, uh, a, a helper, a counselor, uh, an assistant, uh, and even an advocate. In fact, that is how the word is translated in some passage of scripture as advocate. Outside the New Testament, it was common to use this word, paraclete, to describe a, a legal assistant or a legal help. In other words, somebody who would be called in to argue someone's case before a magistrate or a judge. That person who would act as a legal counselor, a legal assistant, to argue on somebody else's behalf, that is the word paraclete. It is used five times in your New Testament. Five times. All five of them by John. So there are no other gospel writers that use this word paraclete. All five occurrences are in John's uh, writings. Four of them here in this, in the larger passage that we are studying, the farewell discourse. One of them is right here, obviously in verse 16. The second one is in 14 verse 26, in 15 verse 26, and in 16 verse 7. Remember last week I told you there are four passages that deal with the person of the Holy Spirit in this farewell discourse. In all four of those passages, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper, the paraclete, or the advocate. The fifth reference, the fifth use of this word paraclete is also in John's uh, writings, but not in John's gospel. It's in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It's a familiar passage. When I start reading it, you'll know exactly what this is. 1 John chapter 2. Oh, you know what? I didn't, I didn't mark that down to read it to you. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate, a paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, we learn something significant from John's use of that concerning Jesus in that passage. First, when John says back in chapter, in, in chapter 14, verse 16, that the Holy Spirit is another helper, who does he mean by the first? He means Jesus is the first helper, because John calls him a helper in 1 John 2, verse 1. But a second thing we learn is a little bit about the function of a helper, at least in, in John's mind, or how John uses it. In 1 John chapter 2, the imagery is of of sort of the, the father standing as judge, and in this courtroom that is before the father, when we sin, when we rack up a legal debt against us in our sin as believers, we have one who stands in the presence of the father as our advocate, our paraclete. We have one who is called alongside of us to help and to argue our case before the father. And that's what Jesus does. He is our paraclete or our advocate who argues based upon what he has done for his people in the presence of the father. And I think that that is, in many ways, exactly what John has in mind here with the Holy Spirit. So with that understanding of paraclete, one called alongside to argue the case, to help, what is it then that the Holy Spirit does? And this, just to list the things that the Spirit is said to do in Scripture would take the rest of this time. So I don't want to do that because we're going to get into that as sort of we work our way through chapter 14, 15, and 16. I want to kind of give you here just a summary of some of the things that the Holy Spirit does. In this context, and using the word helper as, as our guide in understanding this, I think it is significant to understand that the, what the disciples would have heard when Jesus said this. The disciples heard him say that he was going to 
ask the Father, and the Father would send them another one called alongside to help. Now, what were the disciples fearing since Jesus had already told them that he was going to leave them? They were fearing that they would be left alone without any help or without any assistance. If the Spirit of God is one who is called in alongside to help, what would that mean for the disciples? Well, put yourself in their shoes. They would understand Jesus to be saying that he was going to send one who would come alongside and plead or argue their case for them, an advocate. In what sense does the Holy Spirit plead or argue our case? And before whom? I think that primarily what John has in mind here and what Jesus had in mind was the Holy Spirit giving us the power or the strength to present our case before a hostile world. Think of what the disciples would be thinking at this time. They were in Jerusalem, which was a city hostile to Jesus. At the very moment that Jesus is describing this, Judas was meeting with the religious leaders, negotiating a price for his act of treachery. And they were preparing to arrest Jesus And the disciples already know by this point that the religious leaders, they hated Jesus so much that they were willing not only to kill Jesus, but at this very moment they were plotting and trying to kill even Lazarus, somebody close to Jesus. So when Jesus says, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will come alongside of you as an advocate and a helper to plead your case, I think that what he has in mind here is you do not have to worry about standing strong in the midst of a hostile and aggressive group of people or in a nation I am sending the Holy Spirit, and He will do this work through you. He will plead the case, present the message, make you stand for the truth. He will give you the strength to stand, even in that environment, the environment in which He was leaving. Charles Spurgeon has a helpful description of this in one of his sermons on this passage. Spurgeon says, It was the comfort of the Spirit which brought the martyrs to stand before their accusers and to face death without fear. It was the comfort of the Holy Spirit which led the Waldenses to count not their lives dear to them. It made Luther so brave in the face of death and Latimer so merry even upon the blazing stake. Many a man has died in ecstasy under the power of this consolation and many a woman has pined away slowly rejoicing to do so because when heart and flesh have failed her, this consolation has been the strength of her soul. If you can know the Holy Spirit as your paraclete, you need not desire any other consolation. What is it that made Peter, weak Peter, who denied his Lord only a few weeks earlier, what was it that gave him the strength to stand in front of all of those people on the day of Pentecost and say, you crucified the Lord of glory, but God has raised him up and exalted this one whom you crucified and made him both Lord and Christ. Repent of your sin of crucifying your Messiah, for there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. What gave Peter the courage to say that? It was the helper, the Holy Spirit. What gave weak Peter the power to stand in front of the Sanhedrin? And even though he was threatened with death for doing so, they were they were uh, stricken and, and beaten for their faith, and yet they counted it joy that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his namesake. And when he left that place, they continued right on preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, even though their lives were threatened. What gave Peter and John the courage to do that? It was the Holy Spirit. What gave Paul the courage to stand before Felix, one of the rulers of his people, a a Roman official, and to present Christ to Felix, and then to do so to Festus, and then to Agrippa? What was it that made Felix tremble before Paul's message and shake before Paul's message? And what was it that gave Paul the courage and the power to preach Christ to Nero? And then to say in 2 Timothy chapter 4, that the proclamation has been fully accomplished and the Lord has delivered me out of the mouth 
of the lion. And now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What gave Paul the courage to say that? To stand in front of Nero, literally with his head almost on the chopping block, and preach Christ to him. That's the Holy Spirit. And this has been repeated over church history to audiences large and small, by men and women large and small, on stages large and small, Constantly and consistently, it is the power of the Holy Spirit which pleads the case of God's people through them as they proclaim and stand for the truth. And I think that that is exactly what Jesus has in mind here. What else does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he instructs us in the truth. He is our teacher. He is our guide. He does offer to us comfort. He does counsel us. He does give us help and strengthen us and assist us. He is the one who inclines our heart to the Father and to the Son. He is the one who creates within us eternal life. He is the one who grants repentance and faith to his people. He regenerates the people of God so that he dwells within them. All of these things, strengthening and counseling and encouraging and guiding and directing and teaching and instruction, all of that is what the Spirit of God does for his people. And all of those things are the things that Jesus did for his disciples while physically present with them. So catch this. The Spirit in the Scripture is called the Spirit of Christ because what the Spirit does now in the hearts of and through God's people is the very same thing that Jesus did for His disciples and in His disciples while He was there physically present. But the Spirit of God now does that same work on a greater scale and to a greater degree than Jesus did while present with the Twelve. The Twelve received the benefits and blessings of that ministry of their first Helper while physically present with Jesus. But now multiplied millions of people all over this planet in churches just like ours who love the Lord and worship Him receive the blessings of that ministry of the Spirit now on a greater scale and a greater degree even than the disciples did when they were physically present with Jesus. That's why Scripture describes Him as the Spirit of Christ. Not because the Spirit and Christ are the same person, but because they are what? The same God. Jesus could say, you have seen me, you've seen the Father, not because they're the same person, but because they're the same God. We can say to have the Spirit in us is to have the Spirit of Christ in us. Not because the Spirit and Christ are the same person, but because they are the same God. So, for instance, in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Philippians 1.19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Speaking there of the Holy Spirit. Listen to how Peter describes the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. First Peter 1.11 that says that the Old Testament prophets who predicted the sufferings of Christ were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that were to follow. So Peter looks back at the Old Testament prophets and says the Spirit of God was in the Old Testament prophets preaching and predicting the sufferings of Christ which were to follow. And that Spirit of God in the Old Testament prophets was the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Once again, not because they are the same person, but because they are the same God. So that is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, to instruct us and to guide us, to teach us and to strengthen us, and to give us the boldness that we need to proclaim the truth, even in a hostile environment. Now, second, or third, depending on which outline you're going, yesterday's or last week's, and or today's or last week's and today's, third point, what we learn about the Holy Spirit is not just His role within the believer, but also His residence within us. His residence within us. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. Now the observant reader will say, hold on a second. John, Jesus, doesn't say in you forever, but with you forever. Is there not a distinction between with 
and in. There is a distinction between with and in, but I question whether or not that distinction is important here in the mind of Jesus, since in verse 17 he says, That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. So I think that the with, even in verse 16, is describing here the residing, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that Jesus is here describing some sort of progression in the work of the Spirit. And some people have taken it this way. They say, well, there's a with and an in and a with here. And so this kind of describes the progression of the Holy Spirit. First He is with people, and then He dwells in them, and then He is with them in a different sense. And they kind of try and create some whole progressive doctrine of the Holy Spirit and His work in the church off of these prepositions. I think that's pressing the prepositions too far. If you can press a preposition. That's pressing the prepositions too far. I I think all that Jesus is saying here, in in their mind, they're worried about His absence. And He's saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be present with you. What does that look like? How is that going to flesh out? Verse 17, He will be in you and He will be with you. He will be with us because He is in us. Does that reality amaze you as it should? Take a moment of just some self-reflection. Does that, does that, does the fact that that is a real thing and it is true even now continue to amaze you day by day? Or are you kind of like me and you can very easily take that for granted? And say to yourself, well, yeah, I know that this is true. I read that this is true in Scripture. Christ in me, the hope of glory. He dwells within me. I understand that. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then go on with my day. Does it really have an impact on your life and your ministry, your prayer life and your meditation and and how you reflect upon the nature of what God has done for you? Does it amaze you that the eternal, infinite, immutable, unlimited, almighty God should dwell in the soul of His people, and that our body should actually be the temple of the Holy Spirit? It ought to just stun us. And and I think it's easy for us to just go through our days without even reckoning that to be true, without even realizing that that is true. We think of ourselves as being those who are here, and Jesus isn't here. He came, He left, and now He has left us here alone. And that's how we tend to think of the church. But in reality, we have the stunning, we have the stunning truth, this stunning reality that the Spirit of God is here present with us all the time because He dwells within His people. That reality is something new that came into being on the day of Pentecost. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. So when did this begin? This was not an Old Testament reality. Otherwise, Jesus would not be speaking of this as something that would happen in the future. So the church as an entity did not exist under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant dispensation. The church as an entity exists and came into being on the day of Pentecost. And it is, he, it is, the church, is a special creation of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, which we read at the beginning, verse 19 and uh, through 22 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That describes the church. Jews and Gentiles together are like individual peoples, like stones building a precious temple. And that temple, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, is a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. He resides within us. That's why Romans chapter 8 says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you, you do not belong to Jesus Christ. No matter what your verbal confession is, no matter what your orthodox understanding of doctrine is, if you have not the Spirit of God united with your soul 
dwelling in you, you do not belong to him. You're not his. All believers have the Holy Spirit residing in them. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom this Father has sent after the request of the Son has been given to us that he might be with us and that he might be in us. And I believe that the, the, the with is a describing a residence within. And so he is with us because he is in us. And that will be, that will be the case forever. Colossians 1.27, Paul says that uh, God has made known what the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I've been crucified of Christ, and it's no longer I, Paul, who live, but Christ lives in me. How can Paul say that Christ lives in him? Because the Spirit of Christ dwelt within him. And it's not that the Spirit and Christ are the same person, but that they are the same God. And so to have the Holy Spirit living within us is to have all that is God dwelling within, united to the soul of a believer. Now, at this point, there's two questions that we need to ask before we move on to verse 17, which we're not going to move on to. I'm just going to ask these questions, and, and then we'll be done. There's two questions that we need to answer. The first is this. Did the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament believers, did they have the Holy Spirit? The answer to that question is yes and no. They had the Holy Spirit, but the ministry of the Holy Spirit was different under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, than it is for us today. Let me, let me exp- describe the difference for you. In the Old Testament disp- dispensation, people still needed to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit and given a new heart and given faith and granted repentance and all of that. And that regeneration still took place by grace through faith. So people still needed the ministry of the Spirit of God to regenerate them and give them new life. Old Testament people were not less dead in trespasses and sins than we are. They didn't, they didn't have the ability to turn from their sin, to abandon that, or to believe, or to please God, or to change their spots, or to give themselves new hearts. They didn't have that ability in and of themselves any more than people now have that ability. We, like they, are dead in our trespasses and sins. So they needed the ministry of the Spirit of God to cause them to be born again to a living hope. And and it is this reality, I believe, that is at the heart of why Jesus rebuked Nicodemus for not understanding this. You're a teacher of Israel and you don't know this. He should have known this, that this this awakening in the heart of an Old Testament saint and understanding those realities and placing their faith in, in Jehovah or Yahweh was a work of the Spirit of God within them. So the Holy Spirit was present doing that work of convicting of sin and bringing people to repentance and faith. And when they placed their faith in Yahweh, that was itself a work of the Spirit of God in them. So they were looking forward to and believing upon the promises of God. And the the righteousness of Christ, though a future transaction, was credited to their account in the same way that the righteousness of Christ, a past transaction, has been credited to our account from our perspective. So the Holy Spirit was still there working and ministering, but the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers in the same way, in the same degree, with the same reality of experiences that we experience in that as with the New Testament believers, New Testament, New New Covenant. Um, There's a helpful book. It's written by uh, Larry Pettigrew, The New Covenant Ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he writes this. Old Testament saints had to be regenerated by the Spirit to experience their spiritual blessings. The Spirit effected this regeneration when the person placed his or her faith in Jehovah God and became a genuine part of the covenant community. Regeneration essentially involved a circumcised heart which demonstrated itself in heartfelt participation in the sacrificial system plus a life of obedience to God's revelation. Theologically, it would seem that some ministry of the Spirit 
had to be constantly applied to the Old Covenant believer. To distinguish it from the intimacy of New Covenant indwelling, perhaps this ministry is best designated with the word abiding. In the words of the prophet Haggai, quote, As for the promise which I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. That's Haggai chapter 2, verse 5. The Spirit dwelt with the Old Testament saints through the community, but would not be in them individually and intimately, since the Old Testament saints could not have enjoyed the benefits of the new covenant before it had been inaugurated. End quote. All of that to say, we enjoy the Spirit in us. Old Testament saints in the community, in the covenant community, enjoyed the blessings of the Spirit among them as they dwelt with the Spirit and the Spirit dwelt with them. And that's how those spiritual blessings were communicated to them. They enjoyed the reality of the Holy Spirit and all that He did in and through people, but it was not the intimate reality of the Holy Spirit that you and I enjoy. I hope that clarifies that. Second question. Second question. Does forever mean forever? Somebody after last week asked me the question, if I could address the the issue of whether the Holy Spirit will indwell us in heaven. That's a good question. Have you ever thought about that? Will the Holy Spirit indwell us in heaven? Now, I wish I had about 10, 15 minutes just to kind of quiet down and you could go think that through and then I could come back and answer it, but I don't have that, so I'm just going to give you the answer. Does the Holy Spirit indwell His people when we get to heaven? If I had to judge from verse 16, I would say, yes, that is the case. Because doesn't verse 16 say He'll be with you forever? So you say, but yeah, somebody might say, it says He'll be with us forever, but it doesn't say He'll be in us forever. Well, if the with is synonymous with in, in the intention of Jesus in verse 16, as I've already argued that it is, then I would suggest to you that verse 16 suggests that the Holy Spirit will be with us forever because he will be in us forever. But let me give you some lines of argumentation from other passages of Scripture. Now, to to answer the question, let me say this. There's no verse in Scripture that says, quote, the Holy Spirit will live within the believer in heaven, end quote. There's no passage of Scripture that says that. But I can make for you some arguments that I think will help convince you. Let me tell you where I'm going with this. The answer is yes. Because you're wondering, where is he going with this? Okay, the answer is yes. That's where I'm going with this. But let me let me offer you some arguments. Ephesians 2 describes the church as the building or the dwelling place of God. We are a temple being built up stone by stone. We are like living stones being placed together to build up this church, which is the household of God, as a dwelling place for the Spirit. Now let me ask you a question. Is the church, as the household of God, is it complete? We are being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, the ministry of the apostles and the prophets laid that foundation, and ever since that time, the church is being built upon that foundation. Is that building complete? It's not. What's going on even now? God is calling out His elect ones, His chosen ones, and drawing them to Himself, granting them repentance and faith, causing them to be born again, and placing them into this body, this building, which is the church. What is the ultimate goal of the church? It is to be a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now let me ask you, Does it make sense to you that God would build this household of faith called the church and then abandon it as the dwelling place of the Spirit for all of eternity? That doesn't make sense to me. It makes sense to me that the the goal, which is what Ephesians 2 says, that the goal of this building is to be a dwelling place of God in the Spirit, that the Spirit will dwell within the church of Christ, both now as we are being built and forever after we are built. Let me ask you this question. Does it make sense that my intimacy and enjoyment of the Holy Spirit would be less in heaven than it is here? Does that make sense? That doesn't make sense to me. It seems to me that right now I don't enjoy all the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the experiences that can be mine and my fellowship with Him because I am tied to this body of death. 
which I want to be rid of. I want a glorified body where I don't, I'm not limited by this. But, but my, all of my experience of the Spirit of God and the reality of that fellowship is limited here because I'm still in this sinful body. My expectation is that when I am rid of this sinful body and I get my glorified body, that my experience of that intimacy of the fel- and fellowship of the Holy Spirit will only increase and not diminish for all of eternity. Now somebody might argue, but in heaven the Holy Spirit won't need to be in you, will He? He won't need to sanctify you because you're already holy. He won't need to teach you anything because you will have Christ there to teach you if, you, if there is going to be learning in heaven, which I think there will be. You won't need the Holy Spirit there to strengthen you in the face of hostile unbelievers because there will be no hostile unbelievers in heaven. So all the things that we typically associate with the ministry of the Spirit here will not need to be done in heaven. Well, you're right. I won't need the Spirit to do any of those things in heaven. But that is not all that the Holy Spirit does. Does not the Holy Spirit also incline my hearts toward Christ and make me to delight in His grace and communicate to me the mind of God and and give me joy and peace and happiness and all of those things which are the residing and abiding fruits of the Holy Spirit? Does not the Holy Spirit also do that in me right now? Why would He not want to do or need to do that in heaven? Or is it possible that in heaven the ministry of the Spirit will be something so much more gracious and so much more intimate and so much more powerful and real than anything we can imagine here on earth. How do we know that we will not need the Holy Spirit in heaven just as much as we need Him here? I'm going to be independent of God in heaven? Is that what's going to happen? Not at all. I think I'll need Him more. I'll need Him just as much. I can't need Him more. I need Him an infinite amount. But I mean, I I will need Him just as much in heaven as I do here on earth. I think that as believers, our intimacy and fellowship with the Holy Spirit will increase exponentially when we get to heaven, not decrease. I can think of no doctrine in Christianity. I can think of no passage of Scripture. I can, can think of nothing true about our state here or our eternal state in heaven, which would require that the Holy Spirit not dwell within His people once we get to heaven. Then maybe technically we wouldn't need Him since we would be with Him. But wouldn't it be just like God to lavish upon us that gift in even greater measure than he has while we are here on earth. I think it would be just like God to do that. Well, that answers the two questions. Let me close by asking you this question. Are you aware of the reality of the Holy Spirit in your life today, even now? Is it something that you think upon and is it something that you meditate on? We all understand that charismatics can tend to get a lot of things about the Holy Spirit wrong. They emphasize certain things about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit that is an abuse of the Holy Spirit. If you doubt that, you don't watch enough Christian television. You just have to watch some Christian television. You'll realize that everything I'm saying about that is true. Uh, you will hear some of the most blasphemous things you have ever thought you would ever hear flow from the mouth of those who claim that they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they will attribute those words to the work of the Spirit of God. So that's one abuse. That's one extreme. But it is also true that on the other end of that spectrum, those of us who run in conservative, non-continuationist circles, and if you want to know what a con- conservative, non-continuationist circle, what that looks like. If you want to know how to pronounce it, find somebody else. If you want to know what it looks like, look around you. This is a conservative, non-continuationist circle. We are non-charismatic here. If you want to want to know what our error is, we can be prone to go to the opposite extreme, and that is to ignore the reality of the Holy Spirit, lest we look like one of those charismatics. And we, we don't want to do that. We don't want to be completely oblivious to the reality that the Spirit of God lives within us. So it is appropriate for us to think upon these things and to worship the Spirit and to pray to the Spirit and ask for the Spirit to help us. When we need help with the things that the Spirit of God says that He helps us with, 
illumination, strength, courage, resolve, clarity, understanding. It is appropriate to ask the Spirit for those things because He dwells within us and God is happy and pleased to answer that prayer. The Spirit of God is. And so by worshiping the Holy Spirit, singing about Him, talking about Him, even asking Him to do certain things, in that way we honor the Spirit. And of course in honoring the Spirit, we are also honoring the One who sent the Spirit, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing that, God the Father is glorified in the Son. So I close with these words, these encouraging words from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon writes, Brothers and sisters, we shall do well to treat the Holy Spirit as we would have treated Christ had He been yet among us. Our Lord's disciples told Him their troubles. We must trust the Comforter with ours. Whenever they felt that they were barbed by the adversary, they fell back upon their leader's power. So must we call in the aid of the Holy Spirit. When they needed guidance, they sought direction from Jesus. We also must seek and abide by the Spirit's leadings. When knowing what to do, uh, when knowing what to do, they felt themselves weak for the accomplishment of it. They waited upon their master for strength, and so must we upon the Spirit of all grace. Treat the Holy Spirit with the love and tender respect which are due to the Savior, and the Spirit of God will deal with you as the Son of God did with His disciples. Treat the Spirit of God with the tenderness and respect that we would treat the Master, and the Spirit of God will deal with us just as the Master did with His disciples. Let's pray. Our gracious God, the, the realities of your being and your nature are far beyond the ability of human minds to fully comprehend. But we bow before you in your greatness. We bow before you that you, you are so beyond us that we are pleased and glad to call you our God and our friend. We thank you for the ministry of the Spirit of God in the lives of your people. And may we heed the, the things that we have th- talked about and thought about this morning in not being ignorant of that, not being oblivious to it. Keep us mindful of the reality of the Spirit in all that we do, in all that we say, in our interactions and dealings with one another, that we might truly honor you, Father, by honoring your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent for us, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.